I thought it would be great to start the year of parties by shooting up the studio with paint and just keeping the paint and not not cleaning it up. What I didn't know is that those little paintballs are filled with pigmented fish oil. And so the whole place stunk. It didn't dry, of course. And we and we spent every moment of the following week cleaning up and we destroyed paintings and sculptures. And that was it for me. I was like, what am I doing? I'm Justin J. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. In Stanley Kubrick's 1980 masterpiece, The Shining, Jack Nicholson plays a writer that slowly spirals into insanity as he attempts to complete his latest book. He's incapacitated with writer's block. The creative process can be mysterious and ethereal. Sometimes the inspiration just won't flow. Today's guest is a critically acclaimed artist, but his biggest creative obstacle isn't the ability to summon inspiration at will. It's simply a lack of time necessary to execute all of his ideas. He's a gifted graphic designer and painter with works in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. He uses icons, logos, and public symbols to explore the power and influence they have on our visual language. His New York City studio is filled wall-to-wall with canvases, silk screens, and large-scale pieces of artwork in various stages of production. But you won't find him sitting late at night passively waiting for inspiration to arrive like a cliched tortured artist. He harnesses his creative vision with preparation and organization. His studio is a meticulously structured enterprise with a stringent daily work schedule and a detailed ledger of concepts and upcoming projects. So how do you get 50 naked people to show up at your studio to have their bodies covered in neon paint? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with this prolific multimedium creator. Today, painter, designer, sculptor, and the host who threw 50 conceptual art parties in 50 weeks in his Manhattan loft, Mr. Ryan McGinnis. We're rolling. Okay, Ryan, so... Ryan McGinnis, <laughs> good to see you, man. Third time's a charm, I think. <laughs> I'm so sorry about those technical problems. No, I think uh, it's just a, it's a sign of the times, and I'm, I'm so happy that we're able to actually record this one in person. We're here in your studio in New York City, and it looks kind of like a a peek behind the curtain of like a mad creative process, but something tells me there's a very tight organization behind all this. Oh, there is. I mean, there's a, there's an order and a structure and a system in place in order to allow, you know, the work to be very chaotic. And do you have a set schedule in terms of, of when you paint and, and when you organize? Talk to me about your, your, your average week. Yeah. In general, we, um, we work, uh, 10 AM to 6 PM every day. And uh, beyond that, for instance, this week we started a night shift, and that night shift is just a few hours, 6.30 to 9.30. So there's just a little bit of room in there for dinner. Um, and when you say we, how, how big of a staff do you have? Oh, it's, it's really just me and one or two other people painting at a time. And I need those extra hands because um, my process is very 
um, convoluted. Um, backing up to, to even to the point where actually making paintings, you know, there's a sketch and a drawing process and then a technical drawing process with making digital files and then we make film and then with the film, we burn the screens, and then once we have the, all the screens, we're ready to start collaging those images together and paint to make the paintings. But even the painting process involves washing out those screens in between each use. And, you know, the way I silk screen, I don't um, screen images for multiple reproduction. I might use the screen once, and then it gets washed out, has to dry. In the meantime, we're working on other paintings with other screens at the same time. So I'm working on multiple paintings in parallel. But to keep all of that work flowing, I need another set of hands to help me move things around and wash screens and dry screens and get paint ready. And is there a, a painting version of a writer's block? Like, do you ever, you, you have a set schedule, you come in, you're like, okay, I'm going to paint today. And then you sit down and, and, and nothing comes. Oh gosh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm backlogged. I feel like I'm always catching up to myself and I'm probably... At my worst, I'm five years behind, and the best I've ever caught up to myself is to be a, about 10 months behind. But my goal eventually is to catch up to myself and make work in real time, so to speak. So um, what I mean by that is I'm, 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 I'm always writing down different ideas and um, you know different sketches and phrases and ideas for paintings, basically, um, or ideas that could be included in paintings, whether they be... Um, type or just how to render something in paint or, or actual images, I'm always catching all of those ideas in sketchbooks, which again are very systematically designed. They're all the same size, same number of pages, and I go in order. I don't have multiple sketchbooks. I have one at a time, and um, they're, they're, um, they're just saturated with ideas. I'm not sure I'll ever really catch up to myself. So it sounds like the challenge is not being able to come up with ideas it's 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 being able to execute and and finish them and you do that in order it sounds like and to find the time really blocks of time you know i really need you know three to six hours in a row uninterrupted to be very productive anything other than that is just too choppy and fragmented so when we we spoke before, you mentioned you have you have a couple shows coming up. I definitely want to give you a chance to plug those in a sec. Um, but you mentioned that the work's going to be very narrative based, and I know a lot of artists kind of put a lot of cues and little puzzles in their work. And sometimes to the uninitiated, it almost comes off as like a joke that they just aren't part of. That you know, it comes it can be a little alienating. I've always found your work to be very approachable and kind of inclusive on many levels. So like how obvious is that narrative going to be? Talk to me about what that work is. Sure, yeah. And when I say narrative, I also really mean um, pictorial. So I'm fortunate to have you as uh, someone who is familiar with what I've done, which, as you know, is to make many different individual icons and, and pictures, um, kind of symbols, right? And then I collage those together in what has resulted in non-narrative work or and, and certainly non-linear work and, and, and also work that is very uh, interpretive. And it's never been my intention to tell a story with all of those ingredients. So now I'm, I'm shifting toward wanting to tell a story uh, and wanting to communicate a narrative through addressing the whole picture plane uh, as the area uh, uh, to make a picture. 
a singular picture and then build off of that. And so that's 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 very new to me. And I guess to answer your question, like how almost literal or how how legible will that be? Um, I, I, I guess we'll see. <laughs> well, what's the, what's the theme? Like, let's start there. Yeah. So for I mean, for this next show that I'm working on in the fall, which will be here in New York at Miles McHenry Gallery. This will be my second show there. Uh, the exhibition is called The New Narratives. And a lot of those themes or pictures come from my own life. And um, there's there's a mother and child. I've been working on mother and child series for a while. But there's a mother and child painting in there. There are paintings of um, our girls. We have a, um, a 10 and a 7-year-old girls, a girl. And, 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 and they, um, for instance, there's one of them helping us uh, make beer during the pandemic. So my wife, Trish, and I, we started making beer again. We used to make home brew. Um, and that was one of our pandemic projects. And the, our girls really got into it. And um, I, I, one of my paintings is based on multiple snapshots of me, uh, of, 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 of me having taken of them while making beer, for instance. Um, there's another casual uh, snapshot that I use as the basis for another painting of our younger daughter eating spaghetti in a very exaggerated pose. And that is the spaghetti eater. And I'm working on that painting. So they're very from personal life, I guess, and family life and of, of, of our daughters. So, you know, it seems to me that the medium of photography has never been fully embraced by the fine art world in the same sense that a lot of the other mediums have, whether it's sculpture or painting. And, and that might have to do with the fact that it's a relatively new medium. But it also, I think, might have to do with the fact that with a photographer, you always have a negative for your work. So it gives you the ability to kind of, in an unlimited way, replicate that work basically forever. That's a very different experience than what you do. And I'm wondering, as somebody who puts so much time and effort and and thought into creating these pieces, is there ever a kind of conflict between the thrill of, of selling a piece or selling out a show and, and the kind of separation anxiety of like, I don't have this piece in my possession anymore. Like you kind of have to say goodbye to something that means so much to you. Like yeah, talk you know, to me about that. You know, it's, 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 um, it's funny because I actually use photography. I work with a professional photographer to take very good photos of the paintings before they leave the studio. So nothing leaves the studio before I have a good documentation of it. And I often reference those photos. And so I saw, I feel like I, I still have at least very good reproductions of the work that I can go back and, 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 and look at and reference. And I'll actually print some of those out and I'll work back on top of them and it will inform what I do next. But, but you're right, that alleviates a lot of the uh, stress and anxiety that I do have in letting work go. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine like a a sculpture, for instance, like, I mean, once it's gone, it's gone. And the right. amount of time that it takes to put into that, you know, it must be a really strange process. Right. But you also have to believe that that's what this, that that's how a sculpture lives, right? Yeah. You can't just keep it caged and, you know, you can't be a garage band forever if you really want to share your work and yeah. let the work have a life of its own. Right. Um, I mean, in theory, because I, I see there's hundreds of, of silk screens as we sit here in your studio. In theory, if you wanted to go back and completely replicate a piece that you've documented and sold from, let's say, a decade ago, is that within reason? I couldn't do that because, again, the way I silkscreen is not really um, with image reproduction in mind. And I'll, I'll, 
I'll do a lot of these moves that are unique to the process of silk screening. And to your point earlier about there being sometimes in, in paintings and um, kind of inside jokes or um, uh, references to the process that only people who are familiar with silk screening will understand. And that is, you know, for example, weaving images um, together in a way that that in, in, in a way that is very difficult to do with tightly registered images, and and if you're if you know about silk screening, then you, you you'll wonder how that was made. Um, and I didn't describe that very well, but 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 I like to do those process kind of magic tricks that speak to a very limited audience. In another way, I will purposefully fragment. Uh, images and not pull them completely or not make a very clean pull of an image or I'll um, purposefully misregister or um, I won't clean a screen out in order to uh, produce some of that kind of uh, residual paint from a previous usage or something like that. So the point is I'm trying to use the process to do things that are unique to that process and furthermore unique to that very specific moment where I'm making the painting. So I wouldn't be able to kind of make a paint, you know, certainly similar, right? Yeah. And, 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 I, and I've certainly made works in, in series. For instance, I, I just finished this, uh, my version of Girl Before a Mirror, which is one of my favorite Picasso paintings. And I made 10 versions, you know, 10 kind of uh, control groups where um, I mean, the, the, the point of that gesture is to, is, 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 it's the anti-masterpiece, right? None of them is any greater than the other. Um, and there are 10 versions. And I use the same set of screens, and yet each one is truly unique. I was going to say, so they're, they're an addition of 10, but they're actually not identical. They each not have their own kind of character. Yeah, there are just 10. They're not even additioned, yeah. Yeah, a set of 10 paintings, yeah. So, you know, you and I met around the time and you had released a book called Flatness is God. And 1999. It, wow. Yes. Um, that was one of my favorite books at the time. It really, I was really blown away. It really, there was, it's such a dense book of, of so many, so many cool ideas. One of the interesting things that you did is you really explored how these public symbols that we're all familiar with, whether it's signage or graffiti or corporate logos, and how they have the power to kind of influence this visual language that we all kind of communicate with. And you did some really interesting things with graffiti. You took tags off of doorways and buildings, and you transformed them into these very clean graphic logos that you could almost picture a corporation using. And looking back at that book now, it almost seems like a crash course in branding. And, you know, at the time, the average person didn't really have to be that articulate in the language of logos and branding. But with social media now, you take um, Instagram, for instance, it started off as a photo sharing platform. And now it's almost like a personal branding channel. You know, like mm -hmm. everybody has their own personal lifestyle brand that they're trying to put out into the world. And anybody with a lot of followers who pays close attention to their metrics is acutely aware of, of how they portray themselves and how they brand themselves to the public. And I'm curious, like that transformation, do you think that that's had a profound effect on how people interpret and, and digest those public symbols that you explored? Mm. So, that book came out in 99 and I had moved to New York in 94 and I was immediately taken with tags and graffiti and um, seeing the strategies that taggers took and made to 
consistently reproduce their mark and, and, and furthermore, scouting out, you know, frontiers for that. You know, whether it be, you know, all the different locations say as much as what the marks actually are as well. Um, so I, I immediately saw a parallel between um, a tagger strategy to kind of systematize their, their mark and come up with a kind of so-called visual identity standards the same way that a corporation does. It's exact same strategy, exact same kind of concerns. And so that's where that project came out of, out of that interest in recognizing that parallel, you know, taking um, graffiti tags, uh, isolating them redrawing them so they, uh, you know, as, as technical drawings and even kind of morphing them into something a little more logo-like. And then furthermore, applying more standards on them in terms of like the color palette that should be used, how it should be reproduced. And so, um, yeah, there's a bit of that in that book. I mean, but all of those elements, I mean, obviously you understand that and the corporations understand that. And the I think taggers kind of intuitively that. knew that, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like the general public, it might have just not been understood at the time. The point is, I've seen like everybody is very acutely aware of branding these days. And it, it's, it's, it seemed like it was a very uh, ahead of its time concept to really explore some of some of those kind of, I guess it's a, essentially a street brand. You know, it's a tag, but it's, it's, it's a street brand. Right, right. It's someone's identity and it's an extension of their identity. And even the idea of coming up with, um, you know, a, another name, you know, other than, you know, for, for, for obvious reasons, um, is, was very interesting to me. Yeah, very interesting. You've been very successful at navigating the politics and the strategy of being a successful artist. Well, it may appear that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, I mean, you have a beautiful studio and you're, you know, 15... 15- 20 years deep into your career, I'd say. Um, let's just, let's, we'll take that as a premise that you are a successful artist. I won't put you on the spot. But the point being, um, you know, not only are you very prolific, but you're very articulate at being able to speak about your own artwork. And that's not something that every artist is skilled at. And I'm curious is, would you find it a luxury to be able to be a little bit more behind the scenes and just put your artwork out there and have that speak for itself? Or is your active engagement, your active involvement in being a part of that art and speaking about it and being a public face of that art, is that a major part of how you see yourself as an artist and what you enjoy about being an artist? It, it's definitely um, a very considered um, gesture that I'm making. It's part of the artistic gesture. Um, it's part of my contribution. Um, I love to show the process and share my thoughts about the work, share my intentions, share my failings as well. And I have always thought that, you know, that's the artist's, an artist is responsible and accountable for the work and must answer for it the same way that a scientist is responsible for their own, you know, research and must back it up and substantiate their claims. If I'm going to make an assertion, you know, with a painting, I'm going to almost prove it the same way that you would prove a solution in in math or calculus, for instance. Um, I always enjoyed the idea of showing all of your work so that your answer is, Irrefutable, right? You're proving your work, and so um, I think that that's where that's where that 
that comes from. It's interesting though, I mean, because that's not that's not a universal trait of artists. I mean, if you break it down into these three kind of categories of like almost craftsmen, intellectual, and like mad creative genius, like you have a really strong suit in, in all three of those categories. I mean that that that's just me, and 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 you're right. I think well, I think a lot of artists benefit from not making assertions. I mean, certainly when you you know, stake any kind of claim, then you're opening yourself up to criticism. And one of you know again, like what one of the things I find so intriguing and stimulating, and beautiful about art is that it is. Um, I mean, a lot of the magic comes from it not. Uh, not being frozen, right? It's always fluid and open to interpretation and, 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 and poetic and not... It's premised on asking questions, not providing answers, you know? Um, and, and, and mind you, I, you know, I, I come from a, a design background. You know, I studied graphic design primarily. And design is premised on communicating, right? And the burden of that communication really being on the creator. You know, if, if this work fails to communicate whose fault is it and that's you judge the effectiveness by by that standard right well in design yeah right and so um while i don't wholeheartedly believe that to be true of art you know that 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 the um the burdens on the receiver with art not necessarily you know if it's not your fault if you are confounded well being confounded by the work would actually be 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 positive right um um, but if the work lets lets you down, whose fault is that, right? That's interesting. I mean, because it seems like once you almost have to be all in or nothing. Like you are either the artist who doesn't speak at all about their work and lets, I guess, the gallerists or the critics kind of get to, to kind of define what the work is about, or once you kind of start to describe it and talk about your work, I mean, there's a there's a huge burden, and people really want to get in detail. Is that a fair characterization? I, uh, I think I th- I don't know if that's entirely true or not, um, but I have found that people do appreciate more information in order to inform their appreciation of the work. You know, and again, I'm not saying that this is what the work is, you know, so-called about, you know, but here's some, any, any insight I could possibly provide, I'm happy to. Um, I want to talk about the relationship between an artist and the gallery that represents them. First off, what, is there a difference between an art dealer and a gallery owner? Is that a big distinction? Uh, well, I, you know, uh, the owner of the business can have um, dealers on staff, for example. Yeah. Um, and there is a, a difference between a, a dealer, for instance, and a broker. A lot of gallerists are primarily brokers. They're brokering deals and then the artist pays them without commission. Without. So if you represent an artist in addition to that, you would be kind of closer to a gallerist than just an art dealer? Is I that suppose the difference? So. I mean, I'm not... I'm not so knowledgeable of what all the different terms and titles mean, but a gallery that purports to represent an artist might take extra care to share their work, you know, with the world either through um, publications or art fairs, um, or even uh, you know, pitch that artists and projects and work to yeah. uh, institutions. I mean, for so instance. well, what's what's the relationship like? I mean, do they act when when you're when you're with a major gallery? Do they act as also like? A mentor in terms of the 
creation of, of, of work and kind of steering and guiding you? Do they act as a kind of a strategic ambassador to the marketplace? Do they help you with pricing and setting additions? Is that part of, or part of their role? I think, uh, it, it, I mean, it's been my experience that the relationship is um, really focused on the marketplace, right? As opposed to kind of personal growth or any kind of like mentorship. But career, but career development. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Which is completely separate than making, uh, from making yeah, the work. Yeah, there's not a therapist, yeah. but yeah, they're yeah, helping yeah, yeah. you, right, they're right. Helping you uh, cultivate as much yeah, money out of it, your work as possible. Yeah, exactly. The, the idea is to bring the work to the marketplace. And are, are you in a contract with the gallery? I mean, would you characterize the relationship between an artist and a gallery? Is it closer to a recording artist and a label, or is it closer to a photographer and their agent or an actor and their agent? Oh, probably more like a photographer and, and their agent, yeah. And yeah. so you can, both parties can kind of walk away at any point? Or oh, how, sure, yeah. yeah. I, I work with a few different galleries, and um, sometimes I'll do you know isolated projects with some galleries. And so in, in my very specific case, it's usually exhibition to exhibition, you know, and or project to project. And the, the, the cut to 50% generally? Uh, most often, yeah, depending on uh, uh, what you're getting in return, yeah. Okay, so you're making the analogy that a photo agent is similar to a gallery, but a photo agent takes 20 to 25%. They're taking 50 Tell me about some of the things they bring to the table other than mm-hmm. wall space. I mean, oh, they bring emotion, and, and, and credibility. And the, like, well, that, that wall space is also very expensive. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm being, I'm, yeah. I'm being reductive here, but... Yeah, uh, yeah and, 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 and a staff... And um, in the case of my upcoming exhibition here in the fall, um, the gallery is um, producing and publishing a catalog, and I love making books, so so that uh, gets me excited, you know. Um, in some cases, if there are significant fabrication costs, you know, the gallery may front those as... I was going to say, did they, as, under, they underwrite artists sometimes? In, in some cases, um, and in some cases, it, w- it would be like an interest-free loan that would be paid back um, initially from any sales of that work. And so so there, the details of those kinds of deals um, can be sorted out. But that's one example, you know, fronting fabrication costs. Um, but yes, having a, the real estate... Um, promoting the exhibition, the staff, the storage, and you're sure um, intangibles like the, the credibility, uh, maybe introductions in in that representation to institutions or collectors, and you know there's no real um, hard fast you know model or or playbook. Um, and as as an artist, how do you benefit from a show that does really well? So you're an emerging artist. You sell out your show. That's great. In most cases, not you, like because what we talked about, you have your screens. But say a traditional painter, you sell out your show and your career explodes. That work becomes extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. How does the artist capitalize on that? Because they don't own those paintings anymore. Like other than their ability to create their next show and price accordingly, how do you capitalize on a, on a major appreciation of your work? Well, you can liken every work of art an artist makes to a share in their corporation, you know, and as such, you, um, you want to be the majority shareholder always. And so you always want to keep as much of your own work as possible, even if you're just making work for yourself and setting it aside. Um, and it never gets shown, you know, you want to, you want to bank as much of your own work as possible. Um, if you, you know, really believe in it. It seems like, is that sometimes create conflict with the gallery that you're with? Because... I don't think so. No? No, 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 no. I mean, you remember in, in, the, in the case of like, uh, you know, galleries that work primarily as 
brokers, you're paying them, right? And they're working for you. Yeah. Um, and you are the asset holder because you've invested in the work and the labor and you have the asset. And so you are, you're loaning out the work. And But if you take, let's say, you, you know, you have 20 paintings. Sure. And you have a show yeah. and you decide that you want to take 16 of those and keep them for yourself and you're going to show four. Oh, your, well, then you would only loan four. <laughs> yeah, your yeah, gallery yeah. would get 50% cut on those four. And depending then you're, on the deal. Depending sure. on the deal. And then now you're holding 16 for the ethereal future when they right. become extremely valuable. That wouldn't create a conflict with a gallery owner who wants 50% of the other 16? Oh, I see. It's uh, up for subsequent sales. Whatever yeah, yeah. I mean, each, again, kind of, there, there's no playbook. So, so you know, my, my advice would be to be as transparent, you know, as, as possible and share all of that and say, hey, I've made this series of works. I'm keeping this many. I will loan you this many. If you want more, um, let me know. Um, but I think really what you're getting at is, is sometimes these, uh, you know, collectors who might want to go direct to, to a, an artist and buy work directly out of the studio. Maybe, maybe what your question really is, is, is then, you know, would the gallery be... Yeah, is there uh, an exclusivity oh, deal for that, a body of work? Yeah. Once again, it yeah, yeah, yeah. Every case terms. is different, but it's, it's, I think it's really important for artists to you know, keep in mind that the, the gallery is really doing all of the work and, and, and publishing the work, making the work available to the public and making the public and collectors um, know about the work. And so that, that relationship and those efforts really need to be honored, right? Yeah. Um, but sorting all of those things out ahead of time and, and, and up front makes everything easier down the line. There are artists who like to sell the work. I don't like to sell my work. I don't like to be involved in that. You know, and I'm not very good at it at all. Um, so I really, I love working with um, brokers and dealers and galleries. It's a separate skill set and they have oh, a gosh, that it really is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And do they help you set your edition sizes? Is that something that they're involved in? Well, in the case of working with um, uh, like a print edition you know, publisher. Yes. And so I've worked with like, um, Pace Prints and Lower East Side Print Shop and Edition Copenhagen. And we will always set the edition side before the, uh, we start with the project. Um, so this is a beautiful studio here in Manhattan. I was here about 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. I don't, you had, you did an amazing project called 50 parties and you put a book out, you did 50 parties in 50 weeks and they were really outlandish themed parties. Uh, there was like an autopsy party. There was a drugs party. There was a naked party. There was a golf party. And I went to a few of them and they, you went all out. I mean, it was a real production to put these together. Um, that project got out of control. This was uh, <laughs> 2009 into 2010. And the idea was to do a different party, one a week, a different theme, a different concept, and to dedicate three days to that. And the other days we would be painting and operating the studio normally, and it just overtook. It was just it was a full time job. Yeah, how many parties in until you realize that oh shit, this is going to be my life for the next forty five weeks or whatever? Like two, <laughs> so forty eight so, weeks. Yeah. Well, so we had actually we had party zero zero, which was called practice party, and so we we learned from that. We knew we would have to um, have a practice party in order to you know set up the. The, the systems it would take to run a whole year. And then our first party was um, Shoot the Freak, which was um, 
<laughs> that awful game out in Coney Island Coney, that was yeah, played yeah. between buildings. Has, has it been canceled? I feel it like that's not really been. a thing you can do. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Anyway, I'm sure it was completely illegal, but you would buy a bucket of paintballs and you know shoot someone running around in a junkyard. It wasn't even a private, I mean, it wasn't even an actual stall. It was like an abandoned field with a brick wall. Right, it was between two buildings. <laughs> it was an empty lot. Anyway, so, so the title for that party came from that game in Coney Island. And I thought it would be great to start the year of parties by shooting up the studio with paint and just keeping the paint and not not cleaning it up. What I didn't know is that those little paintballs are filled with pigmented fish oil. And so the whole place stunk. You know, it, it, it didn't dry, of course. And we, and we oh spent, you know, every moment of the following week cleaning up and we destroyed paintings and sculptures. And that was it for me. I was like, oh, fuck, what am I doing? And, um, you know, but, but once I commit to a project, I see it through. And um, I had already committed to the whole whole year and we had mapped everything out. I mean, it was pretty extravagant. All of we, we staffed up and it was, it was a huge expense because we didn't charge anything. All, all of our guests came that as they were invited guests and they came for free. We had, we had an open bar. We had an open bar every week too. And I, it was, it was, it was such an expense that when my wife and I went to um, buy our current place, which was soon, soon after that, I had to write a letter explaining this anomaly and, and explaining this whole project, the purpose of the project. And to the lender? They were curious. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and then also testifying that I would not take on a project like this again <laughs> or do this again and, and just, just basically explain what had happened. So two questions. What was your favorite party and which one was your biggest regret? Oh, um, great questions. Each one was so unique. Um, so I'm not sure about favorite. Although I let for Labor Day or the week of Labor Day, we did labor party. So everybody worked in the studio and we, I parsed out all the different tasks and had to do lists. And so that was the most productive. And so that's probably my favorite. Um, and then least favorite. Oof, oof, oof. So we did a Dungeons and Dragons themed party and we contacted the local as you can imagine, there's a local Dungeons & Dragons club in Manhattan. And for each of the parties, we actually dove into the different subcultures um, up for the theme and, and had invited hosts um, to host the party. But for this one, we had the Dungeons & Dragons club host our party. And it was the only party where me and the people helping me with the parties each week, um, we felt alienated. And um, we, we really just sat back and... You know, we don't really know how to play Dungeons and Dragons, but we were going to get into it. Did they bring their own guests? Oh, yeah. Or oh, their- yeah. They brought their own guests. And we had our own guests, too. Um, and But but that was the only part of where we... And we dressed up in costumes, too, like wizards <laughs> and unicorns. And, um, you know, the, so our costumes were, you know, tongue-in-cheek and, and more playful. And, of course, they came in... A lot of the Dungeons and Dragons players came in dressed as well not really costumes more like sincere cloaks and it was, anyway it was, it was there was such a disconnect between the, the 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 concept and the and the core party guests and us and so that was that was the weirdest one um which actually isn't that weird um but another party that was a total flop was a debate party and so that's where i actually saw guests come in our guests 
look around and leave. <laughs> we invited a high school debate team to come and, you know, give practice demonstration debates. Yeah. And we're always very care- careful about everything legal um, with these parties. And so we upped our insurance and everything. And um, so for this one, we were not serving alcohol. We didn't have a bar at all because we had high schoolers in here. Um, but anyway, and so we just ordered um, soda and pizza. <laughs> that was, you know, that was the... Um, and some of the guests were like, wait, there was like free drugs and liquor at the last party. What's up with this? And everyone's sitting in rows and listening to the high, these high and school so the guests were the podium. the guests weren't participants. They were just audience members. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That, that was a total flop. <laughs> wow. Well, that was... Uh, congrats on that, because that is just really, uh, I mean, a, a legendary endeavor that you that you oh, undertook. And it was, it I was, had a lot of fun. Yeah, I came ridiculous. to the, the naked party with... Uh, my good friend Spencer Tunick. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's an example of you know inviting um, Spencer, who would be appropriate host for the party, you know, a naked party. Um, and I was actually helping him out, so I was not naked, and neither was he. And the people were very uh, kind of antagonistic in a way. I'm like, listen. I've seen plenty of. Na- I, I'm not here to to gawk at you. Please, I'm helping out my friend. Yeah. What What was unique about that is is that of course we weren't just straight up naked. Uh, we painted everybody, and so you would come uh, as a guest and sponge yourself down with uh, body paint, make yourself a solid background, and then come to tables where we would you know and lay down and we would silk screen images on top of you and this was all uh, fluorescent and so it was all black light as well so in fact nobody really felt naked but uh the, you know it made for some nice group photos that's that that you and spencer took as well as uh, the setup on the roof and then that's where people were naked because there wasn't black light on the roof but yeah. anyway <clears throat> very cool um so i guess you know my last question i'm wondering is there a particular piece of artwork or a body that you've done that that really resonates with you that's like your favorite like that you really want to be remembered by I mean, oh of my own work yeah oh gosh what do you what are you most proud of what do you want to be known as oh gosh i don't i don't, I don't know about that um but i'm happy to have been able to explore a lot of different bodies of work and i and i like working in different bodies of work instead of having you know just you know i I investigate as, as deeply as possible within each body of work, but I'm working on so many different things at, at a time. Yeah. Is there a body of work that you, in retrospect, would look back and say that wasn't as successful as you would have liked it to have been? Oh, gosh, yeah, everything. I mean, everything is not as su- successful as I'd like it to be. Um, and, and, and that's how I'm reassured that I'm continuing to learn and grow. Yeah, everything's like that. embarrassing. That's a, no, that's a great approach because if you're if you're awesome and perfect and terrific at everything, what's the incentive? What's yeah. and you probably actually aren't. <laughs> right, 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 right. I guess so. Yeah, but you know the the work has always been the reward for the work, and and you know sometimes I'll joke that every painting should be a failure, you know, or or a learning opportunity. I guess. Um, so I'm 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 always trying to learn from myself and learn from from the work. That's really cool. Um, so we always like to end the episode by asking our guests to kind of pay it forward and and plug a project that they are not directly involved in, whether it's a book or a movie or an emerging artist, a cause. Is there something you want to kind of give some shine to and, and plug that people might not be aware of? You know, my friend does this um, newsletter, weekly newsletter, um, like an email newsletter um, called SICK, S-I-C, Ben Dietz. And Ben's newsletter 
is so stimulating and interesting to me because I, I don't understand 95% of it. And it's, it's um, he's curating different um, articles and links to different articles and ideas and writing a little bit about it. But, but it's, you know, it's about all these different things in culture and underground culture and alternative culture and culture that's at the forefront of technology and fashion and all these different, I just, it, it's just so bewildering to me. Therefore, it's really stimulating. Um, so I'll just mention Ben Dietz's sick newsletter. Right on. Check that out. And then um, one last plug. Give me the dates on the, the shows you have coming up. Oh, I have a show this summer in um, Aspen at Baldwin. And that's July until the beginning of September. And then there's here in New York in October at Miles McHenry Gallery. And that will be these new paintings called The New Narratives. That sounds like a big one. I'll be there. It is. It is very significant. They're um, making this uh, beautiful book with it as well. Anyway, I'm very excited. Fantastic. Ryan, you look like obviously a very busy man from the looks of all the artwork lying around. Um, I appreciate you taking the time out. No, thank really you. Cool. Thank you. I love the podcast. And, and uh, what, what's curious about why it was called the plug and have you ever explained that? Um, I haven't. I'll do it. So it's actually a, a rare triple entendre. Um, it originally started. Um, there's a lot of kind of surf DNA in in the podcast because of my lifestyle and, and the the book project that I shot. So the part on a surfboard where the leash attaches is is called the plug. And then we also like to give guests an opportunity to kind of talk about their current projects or to plug them. And then it's also kind of a you know a slang term for like a drug hookup, like the plug. So it's a it's a triple entendre. I love so, it. I love yeah. it. Appreciate it. Ryan, all the best, man. I will see you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Ryan Bucci and Peter Buckingham. Theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan, with sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.